Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, you please open your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We'll be focusing in this week on verses 12 through 16. So if you would please stand with me for the hearing of God's word. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Thus far for the reading of God's word, may he use it and may it bear good fruit in our lives. You may be seated, brethren. I want to begin this morning by reading to you some, I like to do some song lyrics from a song that Many of you may remember, especially you older folks, youngers. Maybe this is one you can go home and find on your Spotify playlist. A guy named uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Years and years ago, early 90s, he wrote a song called Blindly the Blind. Hear these words. There's a teacher in a schoolroom somewhere on the edge of town telling innocent little children what we used to be. Maybe today we'd say what we can transform ourselves to be. They look and they listen without a question. They see the pictures passed around, making facts out of a theory. And they all believe. As the lost lead the way, another heart is led astray. And there's a preacher in a nice church, anchored in the heart of town. People flock to hear his eloquent delivery. He talks of Jesus, how he can please us, but the cross cannot be found making theory out of facts until they are all deceived. And the lost lead the way, and more hearts are led astray. These are the days when the blind lead the blind, and there's one narrow way out of here. So pray that the light of the world will keep your eyes clear, because it's a dangerous place here where the blind lead the blind. Brethren, as was in the days and the people to whom Paul addressed this epistle there in Rome, as is our day, brethren, we are in a day in which I don't need to convince any of you the blind are leading the blind. There's darkness in the world, and it's growing deep. There is darkness in the professing church of Jesus Christ. It has grown deep. And not only is there darkness, but in the blindness, it's like Jesus said to the Pharisees, I think it's in John 9, where he says to them, if 
Because you say you see, there's no forgiveness for you. It's for those who do not see that he came to open eyes. The, 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 the heaping on of evil in our day is not just that there is blindness in the public square and even so much blindness among the professing church, but that there is doing so with the hubris and the arrogance of claiming that they see, and not only so, but they're the only ones who see. Right? We see and you don't. Kind of unholy gaslighting, as it were, of those who have the word of God open in front of them and those who are committed to follow the living God in truth. Brethren, the reality of the matter is, is that we are, we are in a situation in which our day we have come to call evil good. And unless we think that this is the worst, the worst of all, worst it's ever been, just go read your prophets, go read Jeremiah. As in, you know, the days of even the church of Jesus, the people of Israel, the covenant people, didn't know their right hand from their left. They had the word of God right there in front of them. They heard it. Moses preached in the synagogue every Saturday, and yet they were full of corruption and malice and evil and wickedness. The law had actually, far from sanctifying them, had actually made their rot worse so that they were now a bane on the world instead of a blessing to it. Brethren, you know, as Paul has been talking to us about these ditches, Romans 1, about the ditch of unrighteousness, Romans 2, so far, the ditch of self-righteousness. He has been making the point that the common thing those both have in common is they're both forms of unrighteousness, and they're both forms of idolatry. Really, they are. They're both forms of worship of another God and, and, and rejecting His righteousness, rejecting His holiness. So today, as Paul continues to make this argument about the righteousness of God in judging the world, which is the prime point he's driving at here, he's going to show us and really focus in on the fact that because God is a righteous judge, all men will be judged in truth and in righteousness on that last day and in time. And we must, as his people, therefore, live our lives now in light of this reality. And do so with a good conscience before God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.3 that he endeavored as his fathers before him to live with all good conscience before the Lord. We're going to talk about conscience today. But it's so imperative, brethren, that we keep a, a good conscience, as the scripture says, because that is our guide. It is our light that keeps us in the way of blessing and the way of righteousness on that narrow way that Stephen Curtis Chapman talked about. There's one narrow way forward in the midst of prevailing darkness to the celestial city. So, brethren, let's just consider today, we'll consider a couple key principles, and then we're going to make some applications. Number one, and this really is the main point, I would say the main point of this entire uh, section here. We see this really in verse 13b. Um, and then again in verse 16, and the main point is this, is that there is a day of coming judgment. And only those who do or who practice according to God's righteous, just law, his ways, will be justified by God in the coming day of judgment. And I remind you again, this is not Paul getting all works righteousness here. This is Paul laying out the implications of what faith does. Paul is speaking just like James does in James 2 here. 
you know, as the body without uh, breath is dead, so too uh, faith without works is dead, right? Take the spirit out of the body, it's just dead. So too, faith, so-called faith without works is a dead faith. It's not a living faith. That's what Paul is saying here. But he is saying that your works will show the way you live to scope whether you are one who pursues, as we saw last week, who lives a life characterized by pursuing, by pursuing you know, uh, holiness, a, a life pursue, uh, that is lived towards pursuing immortality, towards holiness and righteousness and the Lord to please Him, that will show what, what you really are. You will know, be known by your fruit. That's all He's saying. So a corollary to that, as we'll see when we look at these verses together, is that, is that those who merely have or merely hear or even maybe they honor, maybe they, you know, maybe they have a big... Bible up on their pulpit. Maybe they pay homage to it, you know, whatever. But those who merely have here honor God's law, but don't strive in true faith to obey him, they will not be justified in God's sight in the coming day of judgment. Look at verse 13 and 16 again. Paul says there, this is the key, not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. And then verse 16 clarifying because verse 16 actually really picks up the thought from verse 13 it is those who are the doers of the law who will be justified in the day when god will judge the secrets of men by jesus christ according to my gospel brethren there it is so that that's the key point paul wants you to see he wants us to consider that and let's let me draw bring out paul's argument a little bit more he says essentially here that all people both jews and gentiles have sinned and they have fallen, Jews and Gentiles, short of God's glory. We're going to see that in chapter 3. He's going to come to the point there in chapter 3 that we see that the law condemns everybody, Jew and Gentile. There's none that does good. There's none that does righteousness. No, not one, right? There's none that has lived according to the light they have received. We all know Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know where he's going with this, but today, when he's making this argument, he's trying to help us to see how that, how that works out. Number one, the Gentiles, he says, the Gentiles, those, they have sinned. So here he is, he's looking from the perspective of the last day of the final judgment, and he's saying, regarding the Gentiles, here's the verdict, they all have sinned. They will all be found to be sinners, those outside of Christ, will all be found to be sinners and guilty. But he says here that they have sinned, and he says specifically without, without God's law, without the idea is not having the written, uh, taught, codified law. They don't have, the Gentiles didn't have the Torah. They, they didn't have the, ten ta- the, the, uh, the tablets of stone. They didn't have Moses preaching synagogues every week. They didn't have the the traditions and the oracles of God, right? They didn't have that kind of direct revelation in that sense. But Paul makes this point. He says, but although they do not have God's written law, his taught law of Moses, they are nevertheless a law to themselves. They show the work of God's law written in their hearts, he says, by the testimony and judgments of their conscience. That's what he says there in verse 14 to 15. Regarding the law... The law and the light in their heart, he says here, in the Gentiles, the law, this light in their heart, like, it's, it's like the image of God in fallen man. We talk, you know, we talk about all men, male and female, were made in his image. But when the fall came, 
I can look at anybody, even somebody who's a pagan and outside of Christ, who is walking in darkness and still see that there is a vestige of the image of God there. Okay? It's a marred, cracked image. It's like when you go to one of those fun houses and you stand there in those mirrors that make you look all crazy, right? I can look at that and say my head may be ten times as large as it is and, 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 and uh, <laughs> I may be big and weird looking, but I can still see enough to say, okay, it, who that is. That, that's still, that, that's a, a, a grossly distorted and perverted view of me, but it's still Steve, right? That's kind of the way it is with the image of God in man today. It's there, but it's marred, it's broken, it's distorted. Well, so too is the law of God, right? He's saying that by nature, the law of God, even apart from the written law on Mount Sinai, that the commands of God, the ways of God, the righteousness of God, right? His eternal power and his godhood, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse, I think it's 20, that those things are written by God in creation, in nature, on all people's hearts, Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles have their conscience. They have the law, an intuitive sense of right and wrong. That's all he's saying. And so the sense here is he's saying, look, there's no, there's no escape. There's no saying, well, we didn't have the law. We didn't know right and wrong. There's not going to be on the last day of judgment for any Gentile, so that's us, be able to say, we didn't know. We didn't know. The question will be, Well, the fact is we do know. The question is what have we done with what we know? That God has written his law in our hearts by creation means that we all have some innate knowledge of it. However, when he writes his law in our hearts by the Spirit in the new creation, thank God for that, he also then gives us a love for it and a power to obey it. So there's a writing of the law in the heart by nature, which is there and it tells you what to do but it doesn't cause you to desire to do it. But the blessing of the new covenant is he says, I will write my law in their heart in a new way. I'm not going to write it in such a sense where it can be marred or erased like pencil. I'm going to write it like with a chisel, (laughs) and I'm going to chisel it in there. The heart's of flesh, and it's going to become part of who you are. Thank God for that. But brethren, we all, by nature, he says, have a knowledge of right and wrong without exception. And then he speaks here of conscience. I, want to, I just want to define conscience. On the front of your order of worship, I, I gave a, a definition from Jerry Bridges, which is really helpful because he hits it right on. He says, God has given each of us a conscience, a moral compass within our hearts, bearing witness to his law. In sinful or self-righteous people, that is, people whose dominant characteristics are either obvious sin or obvious self-righteousness, the conscience is to some degree hardened. That is, it is, rel- it is relatively insensitive to sin or its own self-righteousness. But in a growing Christian, the conscience becomes more and more sensitive to violations of God's law. As a result, our consciences continually indict us, accusing us, or, uh, uh, accusing us not only of particular sins, but more important, of our overall sinfulness. We recognize more and more that specific acts of sin are simply the expressions of our still wicked hearts, of wickedness still innate in us that needs to be cleansed. That's right on. That's conscience is that faculty, Oswald Chambers said, that, that faculty in us which attaches itself to the highest standard of which we maybe are aware, and it tells us what the highest that we know demands that we do. 
The conscience is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or toward whatever it regards as the highest authority. If I'm in the habit of steadily facing toward God, my conscience will always introduce God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The point is, then, will I obey? But if I'm in the habit of looking to the ways of the world and the standards of men, then whatever their standards are, that's going to be the standard of my consciousness. That's how we come to say good is evil and evil is good, right? It's when we're, we have a conscience that's not informed by the Word of God and is only informed by the perversion of men and their ways. So brethren, this idea of conscience about which Paul speaks here is so vitally important. The Gentiles didn't have Torah, but they have conscience. They had the, they had the revelation of God in creation, and they had it in their conscience. That's his point. And he speaks there of how, how this works, right, in their hearts. And you all know this. is You know, the law, the thing you know in your heart, your conscience going back and forth, bearing witness, that's right. That's not right. Right, accusing or excusing you when you stick your hand in the cookie jar, kids, and you—it's like I knew I shouldn't have done that. Right? God's given you a conscience as a barometer, as a as a director for you, but it must be informed. It must be informed by truth, right? By the law of God, by the righteousness of God. And in contrast to that, though, notice what he says about the Jews. The Gentiles are guilty and will be condemned without the law because they've got God's word, they've got God's truth in in, in creation and in their conscience. The Jews, it's even worse because the Jews, not only do they have the revelation of God in creation and they too have it in their conscience, but the Jews, he says, they they are actually in the law. The Jews have the law given to them. They've heard it preached every week, right? They go to synagogue. They read it in their homes. They, 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 they have the oracles of God, Paul says. And remember Romans 3, verse 2, he says, What advantage then has the Jew? You know, and he says, much in every way, chiefly because to them we're given the oracles of God. Right? God wrote it out for you. <laughs> he gave it to you right there and he put it in your, it's near you, it's in your lips, it's in your heart. You know, the word of life. So the Jews had this. Romans 9, later on, he's going to speak of the Jews. He says they're Israelites to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, and all the promises. The Jews had a lot more light to sin against. And so this leads then to the third point, that the judgment of God is and will be altogether righteous. Okay? The judgment of God will be altogether righteous. Notice what he says there in verse 16. Number one, he says that this judgment of God, this coming final judgment in that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So number one, it will be conducted by Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. Jesus Christ, the eternally, perfectly righteous judge, will be the one doing it because it would be... in, in it would be impossible for an unrighteous one to be doing it. The judge must be righteous, not guilty of the very sins and crimes that he's called to judge. Right? You remember Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He went on in John 5, and he said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Jesus is the righteous judge. But look else what he says. Not only that the judgment is that Jesus is the righteous judge on that last day, but he says that it will expose and include all the secrets of men. Right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God living. It's powerful. There's the standard. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces to the division of, of joint and soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There's no creature hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're all naked and exposed to him. Rather, and you remember Jesus told them, he said that that which is bun in the darkness will be proclaimed from the rooftops. It will be seen. Now, brethren, for you and I who are in Christ, praise God, the judge is also our lamb. I will not be condemned. <laughs> you will not be condemned. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. The secrets of men and of people will be brought to light. It will be a thorough judgment. He's making no mistake about it. And he says also that God's judgment will account for the context and the light that people have been given. The kind and degree to which they have sinned. You notice this here. It will be brought, and he says, it will be according to my gospel. The gospel that he's been preaching about the wrath of God against all unrighteousness of men who have sinned by suppressing the truth and ungodliness. But his whole point earlier, brethren, in verse 12, was that the Gentiles, they are guilty. They will perish and be judged by, for violating the truth and the light that they have in creation and in their conscience. But the Jews, the Jews will, be, will perish in unbelief and be judged for violating the light they have in creation, conscience, and right in front of them. God will do justly, is what he's saying. And it will be justly, and, and it will be worse to have rejected more light. The ground of judgment will be their works. The rule of judgment will be their knowledge and whether they have lived up to the knowledge. And of course, we know Jews and Gentiles alike, nobody has lived up to their knowledge. Not one. All will perish if they do not run to Jesus as their advocate and their cover. But brothers and sisters, the Bible does in fact teach that there will be degrees of judgment, even among those that go, that perish eternally. Why don't you turn with me very quickly to Luke chapter 12. There are degrees of sin, you know. We, we, as, you, as you turn to Luke 12, as you go there, but remember what our, what our Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says. It, the question is asked in Westminster Shorter Catechism 83, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? And the answer is no. Some transgressions in and of themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more grievous, more heinous in the sight of God than others. They deserve greater judgment because they're more culpable. Because there was more knowledge sinned against, more revelation rejected. Look at Luke chapter 12. We're going to look here at, uh, uh, I'm going to focus in on verses 47 to 48, but I want you to see what he says here. So let me get there. Okay. It says this. That servant, this is, the, this is the parable of the faithful servant, the evil servant. Let me just cut to the end because you know most of the parable. But look how Jesus ends it. He says, that servant who knew his master's will. 
did not prepare himself or do, or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know and yet committed things truly deserving of stripes, he shall be beaten, but with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Brothers, I, I want to let that sink in just for a minute. Okay. Let me give you one more passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews 10 real quickly. Turn to Hebrews 10. Remember, he's writing here in Hebrews to these Jewish uh, Israelite converts to the Christian faith who are now teetering on apostasy and going back to Judaism and rejecting their uh, Christ. Look what he says in verse 26. Following, he says, he, After urging them to not forsake the assembling together of themselves, exhorting the one, one another more and more as they see the day approaching, the very day that Paul talks about here in Romans 2.16, the day of judgment. He says this, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So again, look what he's saying. You, you, you Israelite, you have received more light. Not only do you have creation, not only do you have your conscience, not only have Torah, but you have received now and known the living word incarnate. You have been in the presence of him who is the eternal word. You've had more light, more revelation. But look what he says. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth that sets us free, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected the light of Moses, Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God, the light of the world underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing fall into the hands of the living God. Do you see the point, brethren? The judgment that is coming back in Romans 2, the judgment by Jesus that exposes all secrets, it will be just. And it will, while all will perish outside of Christ, there are some who will have more eternal and long-lasting loss in judgment. I don't know what that all looks like. I don't think that's like Dante's Inferno. I don't know. But I will tell you, brethren, God is just. It's not just everybody who goes to hell goes to hell. Right? He is just even in hell and in the same way in heaven. All Christians will go to heaven who have put their faith, but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be those who suffer loss. Their wood, hay, and stubble burned up, whereas those who have built with good things, gold, silver, and precious stones, which will endure the test and endure. Brethren, I want you to keep these things in mind. So let's just consider then some application in closing. But I really want, I want to drive this point home. And here's where this comes down to for you and I tomorrow. Brethren, today and especially throughout this week as you go forward, we must, brethren, we must live our lives. The mundane things you and I are going to do tomorrow, working on computers, working with children, teaching them, you know, working on cars, whatever we're going to be doing, the things you're going to be doing tomorrow need to be done, must be done. Live your lives day by day with, a final, with the final judgment in view. 
That should always be there for us. We will give an account to the living God. You will, I will. We're in Jesus, so I don't need to live in trepidatious fear of torment. But I do need to remember that, yes, I'm going to give an account for my life. Has it been lived in faith, pursuing glory, honor, and immortality, as he said earlier in this chapter? Has it been one that has been wasted? So that should cause us to live with a holy fear of God, right? A holy reverence like we just read. It should also cause us to live with a hopeful, joyful faith in God working through us. Because, brethren, we also know that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Brethren, if you live your life in earnest for the Lord by faith, seeking his ways, seeking to be pleasing to him day by day, he is not unjust to forget your good works. He is not unjust to forget the the faith you've shown. He will reward you in abundantly. He is a good and generous God. So what that means is this, that right now counts forever. What you're doing tomorrow counts for eternity. Not only in your life, but it counts for eternity and will shape the eternity of those with whom you minister. Moms, dads, as you minister to your kids tomorrow, as you serve them, as you train them, you are shaping their souls either towards eternal glory or towards, or towards perdition. As C.S. Lewis once said, he said, There are no mere mortals. You've never met a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we live, work, play, snub. Eternal glories and joys beyond anything you can imagine or eternal horrors. Brethren, it is in light of this reality of the final judgment that we must conduct our lives here and now, day by day. That should always be over you. That should be holy fear as well as hopeful, joyful faith. He will reward me. He will bless those who seek him in faith, and he will help them. Secondly, we must develop and keep a good conscience before God, brethren. As we've said earlier, I won't go into depth here, just to say that conscience can be. The Bible says that um, the conscience is not infallible. As we said, even unbelievers have a conscience, but their conscience leads them astray because it's not informed by truth, right? Their sense of good and evil is all corrupt because they're getting their cues from all the wrong places. But look, what we, the Bible says that we can have an evil conscience that doesn't turn away from sin. That's Hebrews 10.22. We need to have be sprinkled from an evil conscience. The Bible says we can have a weak conscience that convicts us or feels bad for things that aren't really. Think about 1 Corinthians 8, right? It says that there are those with a very weak conscience that condemns them for things that aren't actually sin. right? Or they can have liberty, maybe enjoy a drink, but their conscience convicts them of it. So they have weak conscience, an uninformed conscience. The Bible says we can have a defiled conscience that loses its ability to discern right from wrong altogether. Titus 1.15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are impure, even everything that they touch is corrupted. <laughs> right? That's what he says. To those who are impure in their heart and their conscience, they actually corrupt the things that they come in contact with. They, and, they, and it says we can have a seared conscience that no longer feels bad for evil at all. Second Timothy or First Timothy four two. You know what happens when you have a seared conscience, brethren? Let me tell you what happens when you have a seared conscience. Paul Tripp put it this way: What once bothered us doesn't bother us anymore. What once activated our conscience doesn't seem to anymore. What we knew was outside of God's boundaries and therefore functionally outside of ours now lives inside our boundaries. And it doesn't matter to us so much anymore. 
It's a scary place to be. The heart becomes hard and stony. It's not malleable anymore. It's hard and resistant to change, no longer tender and responsive to the squeeze of the hands of the Spirit. There's evil in our hearts and in the acts of our hands, and we're okay with it. Not a big deal. Could there be a more place, a more dangerous place for a believer to be? Rather than look at ourselves, things that we used to bother us, things that we used to say, Lord, keep me away from that, that we look at now and say, eh, no big deal. Brethren, I exhort you, don't have a seared conscience. Keep a tender conscience for the Lord. Train your children to have tender consciences toward the Lord, to always be sensitive to conscience and to obey the voice of the Lord and the truth of the Lord. So just look at the five things I put there. These are very practical. We can just do these daily as we go this week. Number one, as I said, remember that now counts forever. All our dealings are with immortals, and they have immortal consequences, eternal consequences. So number two, confess and forsake all known sin. Brethren, keep short accounts with your sin. If you have sinned, repent now, if not yesterday. (laughs) Don't let the sun go down in anger. Keep you be the one to say, I am sorry, I sinned. If you've sinned, deal with it now. Bring it into the light where the blood of Christ will heal it. Ask for forgiveness, be reconciled, and make restitution to anyone and everyone that you have truly wronged. And again, do it today. Do it quickly. Don't let your heart become hardened through the callousness of sin unresolved. Don't give the devil a foothold. Number four, resolve by faith to never violate your conscience or another brother's conscience. I won't have us turn to Romans 14, but you remember that's the point there. Not only that I must, he says, that which is not of faith is sin. So if I, don't, if I can't do it with a clean conscience, even if another person believes they can, I shouldn't do it because it's not of faith. But he also says, resolve in your heart to not put a stumbling block before a brother. If I have a brother or sister one who I know has a trouble with whether alcohol or this or that, that I feel I have liberty to do, Brethren, I will not sin against my weaker brother by insisting on my way. I will rather honor their conscience in the Lord and humble myself. And then lastly, feed and educate your conscience on the scriptures. A weak and easily grieved conscience often results from a lack of understanding of the scriptures. Brethren, we want our conscience to be informed by the truth so that when we judge rightly, we judge we're judging rightly. We're not falling into the ditches, the blind lead the blind, but we can see clearly to walk the narrow way to eternal life. Brethren, keep a clean conscience before the Lord and look to Jesus Because Jesus is the one that sprinkles our day by day. The Holy Spirit sprinkles our conscience from an evil conscience. Draw near to the Lord. Love the Lord, for he is your hope. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. There's been a lot of doctrine in this text today. And those are important things to understand how you deal with Jews and how you deal with Gentiles and the differing standards of judgment. But Father, one thing is clear, whether Jew or Gentile, that we will all stand before the Lord. We will all come to account and we will give an account for the life that we have had and how we've responded to it. Father, we have the oracles of God. We are Christians. 
We hear the word of God read week after week. We hear it in our homes and our audio Bibles. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brethren here, everyone in the hearing, that we would be those who are of faith. Father, may we not have hard hearts or seared consciences, but Lord, would the word of God do its good work in us and compel us forward to more faith, more hope, more love, more joy, that we would lay hold of eternal life. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us. Help us, Father, to fear you as well as, Lord, to seek you, for you are our great reward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, having heard this word of exhortation from the Lord,